Good evening, or good morning, or good afternoon, depending upon where you are on this rotating sphere we call home. And as you're going to hear tonight, we've called home for a very long time, much longer than academicians have been willing to admit. That's going to be an intriguing, you know, three hours coming up, because uh, this is something that's very near and dear to my heart. You know, the whole idea of lost civilizations. But let's, let's stay with our current one at the moment. If you all go to theothersideofmidnight.com, that's our homepage for this show, theothersideofmidnight.com, click on the graphic for tonight's show, and then scroll down. You'll see in our radio with picture section, my items and David's items. David is my guest tonight. We'll get to that in a minute. In my items, there are two major things I want to call attention to. Today was the Russian election. The cliffhanger Would Vladimir Putin. I mean, come on, give me a break. He won with 78 to 80 percent of the vote. Obviously, that is not a real number. All his opponents, the real opponents, were either jailed or technically made impossible through the Russian legal system to run. So he, in, in essence, ran unopposed. The reason I'm calling attention to what Putin is doing tonight is because a couple of days ago, he announced something very interesting in two parts. And we won't really have time to get into the second part tonight, but we may do that next weekend on Saturday and Sunday, because he announced that they're going to be sending a 2019 unmanned mission back to Mars. Now, remember, the last time they tried doing this was in 1996, the uh, so-called uh, Phobos Grunt mission. Grunt, I believe, stands for soil or land or whatever in Russian. And it never got out of Earth orbit. And there were all kinds of accusations that we, meaning the United States, meaning the Joint Chiefs, the military-industrial complex, whatever you want to call it, we sabotaged it. There was a Russian general who appeared prominently on Russian television and other media saying, you know, the, the Americans sabotaged it. I'm not so sure because it acted so weird and strange. And finally, after several attempts to revive it and get it to do what it was supposed to do, it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere and burned up. Well, they haven't, they meaning the Russians, haven't tried anything this incredibly ambitious because when, when these nations now, when we or the Russians or the Chinese or Japanese send missions, there are experimenters, there are scientists from other nations participating. And in some cases, they offer and provide actual equipment. So these are really international missions and the uh, international mission, uh, Bobo's Grunt, did not work. So a whole bunch of scientists here in the West, in the United States, and in Europe were also very disappointed. The curious thing is there has been no scuttlebutt, um, an ancient Navy term from my dad's days in the Navy. There's been no scuttlebutt about a Russian mission. So suddenly Putin, a few days ago, announces a 2019 mission to Mars, which is the first link up there. And he also talks about going back to the moon. Remember, the Russians haven't sent unmanned missions to the moon since the 1970s. 
And oh, lo and behold, he's planning to land, or they are planning to land, because of course Putin isn't really driving the train. He's authorizing what's being spent, but not directing exactly how it's being spent. So the scientists and the engineers involved in the new Russian mission, which does not have a name, uh, to go back to the moon, he's also saying in, in this communique that they are going to land near the lunar south pole. Like everybody's now going to the lunar south pole. When we sent up our lacrosse NASA mission back in 2009, it crash landed and took data on the conditions at the near the lunar south pole, a crater called the uh, Cabeus. Well, this is supposed to land in a somewhat different region, a few miles away, a few 20, 30 miles away. But what's interesting is that on the uh, 2009 um, lacrosse imagery, sent back by the uh, imaging spacecraft that was following along behind the impactor, which was designed to impact and throw up a huge cloud of dust and rock and ice, hopefully ice, hopefully water. Um, the second spacecraft, the actual spacecraft, the LaCrosse spacecraft itself, would take spectrometer readings and images until it too, at something like 5,000 miles an hour, crashed into the moon. Well, on some of those last images in color, which we have posted other places and other shows, so I haven't posted them tonight. There's this incredible, gorgeous color cross-hatching pattern, which is obviously not natural, obviously not geological. It's obviously artificial. So there is some kind of real glass refracting, prismatically, spectrally shimmering dome over the southern hemisphere of the moon, and when the Indian mission, the Indians are going back to uh, the moon this year, we're launching in April with an unmanned mission called Chandrayaan-2. Uh, Chandrayaan, I believe, means in Sanskrit, lunar mission. I'm going to find out from David, of course, because my guest tonight is very up on all this stuff. Anyway, they're going to follow their success back with Chandrayaan-1, which was launched and reached the moon in 2008, same year that Barack Obama was elected president. And he was the only head of state to actually congratulate the Indians on their stunning accomplishment, which gets back into what do the Indians know about ancient civilizations? I mean, we have the Vedic tradition we're going to talk about tonight. Did they actually go to the moon? Did they live on the moon? Did they have colonies? Did they have bases? Did they have people? Did they have culture and civilization on the moon? And are they going back to check out their own history? And will it succeed? I mean, if you have to go down through miles and miles of glass, how, how probable is it that the mission is going to actually reach the ground, the lunar surface, successfully? This new mission, the Trendrayan 2 mission, is supposed to consist of an orbiter, a lander, and a rover. So if the lander gets down safely, soft lands, then the little rover is going to take off and start trundling around and looking at things and... In a few months, we could have some really stunning breakthroughs from the, um, from the Indians. So stay tuned for that. Um, so that kind of takes care of the Indians and the Russians. Oh, did I mention the Chinese are also going back to the moon this year with a follow-on to their Chang-3 mission. Chang being the moon goddess, the goddess of the moon, who lives there with Jade Rabbit. Uh, who is making up elixirs for eternal life. The connection in Chinese mythology of the moon 
and eternal life. Well, that's kind of interesting. So before I get to David, let me give you a little back story for why I'm intrigued as hell tonight with what we're going to talk about. My third item, if you go again to the other side of midnight.com, click on the graphic for tonight, takes you to the guest page, scroll down. My third item is a book that was written and published by Walter Miller in 1960, which I read in 1960. And it, it really made an incredible impression because for a kid that had grown up with duck and cover and were worried about the Ruskies sending bombers over the North Pole and nuking Kansas Dorothy so it no longer would be there and that kind of thing, what Miller did was to lay out in modern parlance for sci-fi readers, young, impressionable readers, the idea that our entire civilization could come to a flaming end in nuclear fire. Fire and furious, the president has recently said. And the story, the novel, which actually grew from three uh, novelettes in a magazine for fantasy and science fiction in the late 50s, the novel, A Canticle for Leibowitz, is all about a monasterial order, the abbey or the, the uh, I forget what the technical term was. It was basically a monastery dedicated to Leibowitz, who was then in the novel series, which spans thousands of years uh, in three parts, hundreds of years each, uh, sainted by the Roman Catholic Church. And what was he made a saint for? for preserving ancient documents, for embossing circuit diagrams and radio antennas and rocket ships and all the imprimaturs of the high-tech civilization that in the novel destroys itself in thermonuclear war. And then it's nothing but a memory. And as the hundreds and thousands of years roll by, the memory becomes more and more and more faded until it becomes a mythology, which is exactly what we're going to explore tonight. May have happened a long time ago in a planet right under us, not far, far away. And that is going to be the entree into my introduction to David Warner Matheson, who grew up with a love of the stars guided by his father, and the superlative stargazing books by an author named H.A. Ray. David also grew up with a love of myths and later had the opportunity to teach literature in the Department of English and Philosophy at West Point, including the wonderful experience of exploring with students the 1996 translation of the Odyssey by the late professor Robert Feglis. When David encountered the thesis of Giorgio Dea Santana and Hertha von Deschen in Hamlet's Mill, which was published in 1969, the year we first went to the moon in the modern era, which suggested that the world's ancient myths, scriptures, sacred stories, and folklore share a mysterious connection to a now forgotten system of esoteric metaphor based upon the motions of the sun, moon, stars, and visible planets, and encode sophisticated understanding of heavenly cycles, he had to know more. And of course, the rest of the evening is going to be devoted to what David did to know more. One last thing, David Matheson graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and served as an infantry officer in the 82nd Airborne and 4th Infantry Divisions. He's a graduate of the U.S. Army's Ranger School, Airborne School, Air Assault School, 
and the 82nd Airborne Division's Jump Master School. He also earned a master's in literature from Texas A&M and has spent many nights sleeping outside under the stars and enjoys early morning surfing. He lives with his uh, kids and family in his home state of California, where the water in the morning, because of the Japan current, must be really cold. David, welcome to the other side of midnight. Thanks very much, Richard. Thanks for having me back on. Well, you're, you were such a hit in doing the Christmas star thing. I mean, I'm still getting emails with people saying, when are you going to have David back? When are you gonna... So I've been looking forward to a long three hours talking about all kinds of stuff. And I got to ask this first question before we get into this. How the heck did a guy who graduates from West Point get into deep, deep, deep time in mythology and the Vedas and the Greek traditions and Sanskrit and all that amazing stuff? What was that electrical connection between military service to the United States and ancient, ancient time? <laughs> well, that's a good question. But Richard, I heard you say somewhere in the... Uh intro leading up to this that you're from a navy family so i think we may have to break off this conversation <laughs> okay no i'm just joking of course but um so i was already fascinated with the stars as a as a young child as i mentioned there in that uh, as you as you read there the books of h.a ray which we should delve into that a little bit because it's important. Yeah, we have um, time. We have plenty of time now. You're not just all scrunched into a half an hour. So give the yeah. background on who, because I read H.A. Yeah, so, Ray, and I was as taken by his his imagery and his verbal descriptions as you were. Right, and we should remind the listeners who are probably saying, wait, where have I heard that name before? H.A. Ray, it sounds so familiar. H.A. Ray is a very famous author. He's mostly known for being a children's author because with his wife, Margaret Ray, H.A. Ray and Margaret Ray are responsible for creating the Curious George series. They both mm. wrote Curious George. And That's where I, I was bothering me for you know, whatever. Yeah, so H.A. Ray, in addition to creating the Im- immensely popular and successful Curious George books, also wrote a book in 1952, published in 1952, called the stars, a new way to see them. And if your uh, listeners are already able to go to the radio and pictures, they can see I've put up some comparisons between the traditional way. Yeah, let me the, let me give it, them the it, it, let me give them the trailer breadcrumbs. You go to the other side of midnight.com, you click on the graphic for tonight's show, which is right there on the right hand side of the page. And if you're on a phone, I have no idea what it looks like. We're actually having some mods made, so things are all compatible in phones and on computers and all that. Anyway, just scroll down on the on the guest page tonight until you get to David's items. Right, and the very first picture there, uh, but I can just describe as well what H.A. Ray was trying to correct in this book. He was very frustrated. He says it right at the beginning of the book with the way that stars are uh, constellations are traditionally depicted. And he said they're, they're usually fail in one of two different ways. And he set about to create a much more logical and useful and aesthetically pleasing way of envisioning the constellation. So in that radio and pictures diagram, number one, the very first one, 
I've got the exact same stars on the top and the bottom, two different scenes. One scene I've got outlined in the red background, one scene with the blue background, but it's the same stars on top and bottom. And those constellations- Oh my God, they're totally, totally different. Yeah, those are different ways of outlining the constellations, which will become important as we talk about the connection to the myths. But on the left-hand side, background in red, I've got the stars of the constellation Aquarius, down below Aquarius, the constellation Capricorn, and below them is a constellation known as the Southern Fish. But if you look at the top, that outline of Aquarius, H.A. Ray said, you know, this is just not very <laughs> useful. If you go out and try and find uh, a figure that looks like that in the sky, you're just not going to have much success. In fact, it'll be kind of hard to even remember what that outline looks like because it doesn't look like much of anything. It's just a kind of a geometric jumble. But down below, H.A. Ray has given us a different way of outlining the constellation Aquarius. And there you can clearly see a figure who appears to be running towards the left, carrying a large vessel of water with some streams of water pouring out on the far left. You can see two streams of water going down towards the southern fish. You can see that he's running. His body is kind of pitched forward. He's He's in a running posture with his one leg stretched way out in front of him and his other leg way behind him and uh, or her. Sometimes these constellations in different myths will be a male figure like a, a god. Sometimes it'll be a female figure like a goddess or a human hero or a beautiful maiden. They'll take on different roles. But the distinctive features of Aquarius include that running posture, that vessel that Aquarius is carrying, kind of a diamond-shaped head. You can see that there. But if you look back at the upper picture, same stars outlined completely different and virtually useless for, for stargazing. And I would argue useless for trying to match them up with the myths. So we can talk about how did H.A. Ray, you know, that might seem like a weakness in my argument. If he didn't publish it until 1952, how could the ancient myths be using a system I believe that H.A. Ray either knew this system or he was such a genius, he outlined them in the same way that the ancient uh, myths outlined them. And there's some artwork from down through the centuries that supports my assertion. But anyway, to get back to your original question of how I got involved in all this, when I was very young, even before, I can't even remember not having these books of H.A. Ray around. The stars, a new way to see them later, a few years later, he published a, a version of that just for children, which I also had that one. I think it's called Look at the Stars. You can just go on Amazon. These books are still in print today. They're very, very helpful for it was stargazing. A, it, it was a very thin book, <clears throat> and it yep. had big pictures, and the cover was like blue with stick figure. I forget which constellation was on the cover, but it Gemini. was, it was yeah. very, very different than other star books that I gotten from the library. So it was, it was, it, it, it clicked. Yeah. So he, he, uh, really did humanity a great service by publishing this method of outlining the constellations. But to get back to my story, I, uh, you know, as I, as I've uh, said before, my dad would take me out to see the stars. I was always fascinated by the stars. And I also grew up with the myths, the books of the uh, the Dallaires, um, I may not be pronouncing their name correctly, but Ingrid and Edgar Perrin Dallaires, um, you know, books, kind of children's books, large, beautifully illustrated books about the Greek myths, 
the Norsmiths. It's spelled um, D with an apostrophe, A U uh, L. <laughs> um, yeah, well, anyone can look those up. D, D apostrophe, D Allaire is, is kind of how I used to pronounce it in my head when I was little because I wasn't really sure how to pronounce it. But those are really wonderful books. They're pretty well known as uh, also. You can find those on Amazon, still in print. Dallaire's book of the Greek myths, Dallaire's Norse gods and giants. Those were the two primary books. But, um, and I was also, even when I was pretty young, fascinated by the Odyssey. I'm not even sure how I got started reading the Odyssey, you know, when I was 10 or 11 or 12 years old, but I would read um, even books about the Odyssey, like Moses Finley's book, The World of Odysseus. Um, I remember reading that when I was probably in maybe seventh or eighth grade and thinking, oh, you know, what a great role model Odysseus. But uh, the, the Odyssey. You know what I think of when I hear you talk about the Odyssey? And I think of that song by Supertramp, Take the Long <laughs> Way Home. One of my favorite okay. songs, you know, because uh, Odysseus <laughs> took the long way home. And so that resonated with you somehow. And you wound up later, I mean, as I read a few minutes ago, actually teaching this at West Point. I mean, that must have been really an amazing thrill. Yeah, that's that's right. So, of course, West Point is, uh, you know, as <laughs> as we learned as cadets at West Point, it's America's first engineering school. It was founded in 1802. Um, but I always had kind of a uh, proclivity for literature and English and um, you know, did pretty well in those subjects. So in addition to all the engineering that I had to take, you know, at West Point, you take a lot of courses that are given to you. It's a very kind of old school way. <laughs> you get your electives when you're about a junior, the equivalent of a junior, you finally get to start picking a few. Before that, you're taking, you know, they want you to take boxing, you're going to take boxing. <laughs> they want you to take probability and statistics, you take it. Calculus, wrestling, um, you know, gymnastics, all kinds of things that you might not choose to do on your own. But you do get to choose your major if you want to. You don't have to actually major. You can concentrate in different areas instead of getting a major. But I majored in literature, and um, then I went out into the regular army. But I was fortunate enough to um, be invited back to teach literature later on. And I had kind of uh, some help in doing that from some of my literature teachers who, you know, were kind enough to think very highly of my, um, you know, literature and analysis skills and to uh, work behind the scenes to help bring me back to teach uh, at West Point about uh, after about 10 years in the regular army being in the infantry, as you mentioned, uh, the 82nd Airborne as a lieutenant and then later um, as a company commander in Fort Hood, Texas. And, um, and so I got to go back to teach at West Point and that was a really fantastic experience, of course. And as you mentioned there, uh, not only did I get to teach some fantastic other literature, Shakespeare and some poetry and uh, literature from all around the world, even literature from China, um, some amazing stuff from, from all different cultures. I also got to teach the Odyssey, which was a real thrill. And as you mentioned, the Robert Fagel's translation is just my favorite translation 
I've read lots of different translations. I don't speak ancient Greek, but the Robert Fagel's translation, I think is a really good one. They all have, of course, different strengths and weaknesses, but uh, if, if people are, you know, intrigued by the Odyssey and maybe have read it before, but maybe not the Fagel's translation or even haven't read it before, that'd be a great one to start out with. Mm. And I had the opportunity to meet the late Professor Fagels, he came to West Point while we were teaching it, and uh, that was just a great. Oh, that must have been thrilling! As well. You know, thinking of you as you're describing your career and your your, your various interests and disciplines, it's it kind of you know we would take many cues from popular culture, and I presume you've seen the series uh, Stargate SG One, and there's a very famous academician in it, Daniel Jackson, who's part of an elite military unit. But he's likely to jump out of an airplane with uh, with the Odyssey in his backpack. I mean, that seems to be you. <laughs> well, I don't know about all that, uh, but thanks for that compliment. But I'll, I have to let you down by telling you I have never seen Stargate. You're SG-1. kidding. It, oh, my it probably, God. It probably came out while I was uh, jumping out of airplanes and crawling around in the mud. I mean, there's a big 10-year gap in my uh, you know popular culture. Any movies that kind of came out after I headed off to West Point. It's kind of hit or miss if I saw those movies uh, in the theaters. Well, this and was a TV you, series that ran for like 10, 15, I forget how long, but it ran, it's, it's basically uh, the Air Force secretly looking at ancient civilizations off-world and on-world and connecting to them through a fabulous technological device, you know, kind of a plot device, like the transporter was for Roddenberry in Star Trek. They use something called a Stargate, so they can go anywhere in the galaxy or beyond and they encounter all these ancient cultures that are sprung off human cultures on this planet. And anyway, you would actually kind of get into it, I think, if you find it. It's so easy to find because it's running on El Rey now, day and night, and it's available on CDs and DVDs and all that. So you might want to take a look. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I have heard it referenced before, but I, I will say I did see all the original Star Treks. <laughs> they used to be on television when I was growing up, so... I was born at the tail end of the 60s, so I, uh, I did grow up with the original Star Trek series, and, uh, but after that, the next generation, I never did actually catch up with all, all that. But I can understand a transporter room, and I sure have heard uh, references to Stargate and Stargates and, and uh, just haven't seen it. So let's go back to H.A. Uh, Ray. Um, you say you think he reconstructed ancient constellation diagrams. How would we know? What's the earliest record we have of ancient constellations? Right. So I don't know if he, you know, he never seems to have mentioned specifically, but these allegations or assertions that I'm making, I guess I, let me uh, fill in a little bit more to, to answer that question. Um, from growing up with a love of the myths and a love of the stars, even when I was teaching the Odyssey at West Point, I was not connecting the myths to the stars specifically. I was not teaching the Odyssey as though it was based on the heavenly cycles, which I now believe the Odyssey to be based on the heavenly cycles, just as this is the thesis that you alluded to in the intro. I believe that all the world's Virtually all the world's ancient myths, mythologies, scriptures, including the Bible, but also the Vedic scriptures that you mentioned, um, scriptures from other cultures, in, even in Japan, the Koji Ki, which means the ancient record or the very old record, um, 
from around the world, from China, and sacred traditions handed down, many of them orally, such as in cultures that didn't necessarily have a written tradition. These same stories can be shown to be based on this common worldwide system. And I first encountered that assertion. I'm not the first person to argue this. When I was reading Hamlet's Mill, which we talked about a little bit the last time mm. we came on, it's, it's interesting. Um, we'll get into it a little bit later about the what these things may be encoding. But the last time I was on, of course, was on Christmas Eve, and we were talking about some scriptures regarding the Christmas story. Well, that's around the winter solstice. And as you and all your listeners are almost certainly aware, today is March 18th, 2018. So we have another uh, major station in our progress around our annual orbit coming up this week with the spring equinox. The, the spring equinox happens around March 21st, uh, 20th or 21st each year. That's it, well, let's, let's hold it there. With the bottom of the hour, I need to do a little yep. bit of background thing. My guest this morning is David Matheson, West Point grad, West Point professor, uh, devotee of ancient literature and the stars. And we're going to talk about the mix of the two and how we can probably get something more than the sum of all the parts. The music tonight, you know, in terms of our, our themes, last night we did Nick Skoros, my friend, and tonight we're going to go back to NASA. We're going to go back to this very amazing album that NASA debuted in October of uh, 2001 as the um, one of their Mars spacecraft, Mars Odyssey, named after Arthur C. Clarke's famous uh, novel and the film with Stanley Kubrick went into orbit around Mars. NASA formally released this album, having been composed and arranged and conducted and performed at an ancient Greek temple on the Acropolis in, in Athens. So considering tonight we're talking mythology and that NASA has an ode to mythology, a very thinly disguised ode connecting us and Mars, Welcome to Methodia. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. first hour of the other side of midnight be sure to catch our complete live show every saturday and sunday night at 9 p.m pacific midnight eastern for a full three hours of this kind of exploration and be sure to visit the other side of midnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special radio with pictures guest page simultaneously the kinthea our hard-working producer specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show why because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you 
will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you as you're listening the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique radio with pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell, automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the Open Hailing Frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our Club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, <clears throat> here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials <clears throat> to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now... Back to the show. And welcome back to the other side of midnight, hearing a slight frog in my throat there. I didn't mention in the uh, outro when we were going into the break that this music is Vangelis. And it's so lyrical and so evocative of myths I now know, not only on two planets, but a whole solar system. Well, that's, that's kind of next weekend show. We're going to do something very special next Saturday night. So we'll 
we'll give you a few teases when we get further into uh, into tonight. Um, David, my Bible for looking at ancient mythologies, when I'm looking at constellations, is a book named Star Names, Their Lore and Meaning by Richard Hinckley Allen. Did you ever plumb the depths of Richard Allen? I have heard of him, but I haven't really. Oh, my God, you've got to get this immediately. <laughs> immediately, because any constellation, any star, any asterism, there's all kinds of gorgeous backup, page after page after page. The current volume I'm looking at, I'm going to try to see a page count here, is 553 pages of gorgeous stuff with references and original Greek and Arabic. Of course, most of these constellations we now get from the Arabs, you know, those terrible, terrible Muslims, you know, they, they preserve civilization. And there was a movie with, uh, oh, I forget who the, the actor was, that had um, basically the accurate history of how the, the Middle East, the, you know, Islam preserved science and technology during the dark Middle Ages of European history. So you got to get this book because it's going to give you such an adjunct to your explorations. So back to those explorations, where do we want to go? Um, what myth do you want to start with? Yeah, so um, I think we should dive into the Bible. I have one there for you, but I was just mentioning right before the break, I wanted to kind of finish that thought for any listeners who might feel like we left them hanging with the discussion of Hamlet's Mill. Um, so as I mentioned, the thesis that all the world's myths are connected uh, is not original to me. In fact, it's a very ancient thesis. I have found some evidence that um, Plato knew about this. Uh, the authors of Hamlet's Mill mentioned Aristotle. There are other ancient figures such as uh, a satirist. He's often credited with being the first or one of the first satirists, I guess uh, Juvenal was a big satirist, but Lucian of Samosata, who lived, I believe, around 230 BC. But um, a, a biting satirist named uh, Lucian of Samosata, and actually I'm just remembering the dates off the top of my head, so I could be completely off, uh, talked about connections between the stars and the myths. There were um, Neoplatonist philosophers like Macrobius in the... Uh, you know, later centuries A.D. So this goes way back, but the authors of Hamlet's Mill in 1969 did a, a kind of encyclopedic survey of the evidence that something is going on around the world that appears to connect the myths from all around the world. And they found these connections between figures that appear to have connections to Saturn, the, the Greek god Kronos or the Latin god Saturn. And they really do a, a wonderful survey of kind of exploring around the world and examining these different ruins, but they don't necessarily tie them together in a coherent fashion. A lot of people who've read Hamlet's Mill say it's a bit of a frustrating book. I can agree with that. It will often uh, say, hey, there's something going on here. And then they'll just leave it like that, or they'll say, and the reader can guess what it is, you know. Now, the, in, like, the, the, the central spine of Hamlet's Mill, and that was a pun, <clears throat> which you'll see in a moment, mm -hmm. has to do with the phenomenon of precession. The That's idea right. that the earth, as it spins, also wobbles. And the wobble 
like a top on a table. It's a very poor analogy that everybody uses, so I'll use it too. As it gets toward the end of its spin, a, a, a top on a table spinning wobbles because of gravity and all that, and then it falls over and it stops spinning. The Earth, of course, doesn't fall over. It spins forever, in essence, but it has a wobble, and it's called precession. And these two authors went and found what they thought was a very interesting reference to precession in, of all places, Shakespeare. So you want to get into that, how they got the name for their book from Shakespeare because they thought he might be secretly encoding precession? Yeah, sure. So they found evidence of precession in myths all around the world, going all the way back to ancient Egypt. And we can talk about a little bit about that. And Shakespeare, you know, they, they were certainly referring to the figure of Hamlet, okay? And as everyone knows, Hamlet is one of Shakespeare's most famous plays. In Hamlet, we have the opening scene there. Young Hamlet is in a bit of a dilemma, a big dilemma. He's the Prince of Denmark, but as we know, if we read that in high school or college or just on our own somewhere, his father has been murdered. So his king, uh, his father, the king, King Hamlet, old Hamlet, has been murdered. And young Hamlet is in a dilemma because uh, the king's brother, uh, Claudius, has, has uh, married Gertrude, uh, Prince's, the king's brother. Claudius is as we later find out, Claudius killed King Hamlet and married Gertrude. It's very similar to, <laughs> for modern audiences who are familiar with the Lion King, the exact same pattern. Uh, the King Simba has been, or not Simba. Mm. Anyway, the, the, the dad lion has been killed by Scar, you know, the evil brother who's always lurking around and wants to be king. He pushes, uh, pushes the real king off a cliff and or under a herd of buffalo, you know, stampeding animals. And, and this goes back to Egypt with Horus and... and uh, exactly. Seth. That's right. And, and Osiris. That's right. So they looked at this pattern of the young prince is in a dilemma. He has to avenge his father. But Hamlet, you know, is he's doing all this uh, soul searching because he's not sure if the ghost that came to him is true or not, the ghost claiming to be his father saying, hey, Claudius killed me, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> so, he, so he has to grow into manhood, just like the little cub in The Lion King has to do the same thing. He has to finally uh, you know, take his place in, in the world and confront this uh, scary uncle that has killed his father. And that pattern is the same as Horus. You made the reference already, but just to fill in all the listeners who maybe don't read Egyptian myth every day. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the Oh, I missed this morning. Egyptian, darn, darn. Yeah. Well, you've got to read your myths daily. But Osiris is a god who is slain by uh, his brother Set and 72 henchmen mm. in, the, in the account of Plutarch. Plutarch was, you know, later than early dynastic Egypt, of course, Plutarch was in the Roman era, but uh, Plutarch was a very accomplished, um, he was a priest, uh, he'd gone through different mystery schools, he knew a lot about esoteric and uh, secret learning about the myths. But anyway, Set killed Osiris, so then Horus has to eventually avenge his father in Isis Helps. This, uh, so Isis 
It's the story of Isis and Osiris and Set and Horus. That same pattern these authors of Hamlet's Mill find around the world. And they say over and over and over again, over and over. And it's, and it's not just in, you know, the Mediterranean uh, cultures, but all the way uh, over to the Americas, the Pacific, Africa, Australia, places that academia would say, oh, no, 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 they can't be connected because we know that there was never any contact, you know, regardless of whether those pyramids in uh, Mesoamerica look anything, you know, have similar proportions and processional numbers encoded in them, which they do, just like the pyramids at Giza have processional numbers and certain ratios between the height and the base encoded in them that show that there may be a connection, probably is a connection. The the standard line of academia is, oh, there can't be any contact between these different continents. Anyway, to to get back to where they got this title, Hamlet's Mill, they note that Shakespeare, and he did this with a lot of his plots, mined other earlier material, source material, and then because Shakespeare, whoever Shakespeare was. Really? um, (laughs) You know, Shakespeare may have been a woman, according to some theories. Oh, was that, was that, was that the, is that the newest, latest here. idea? Well, that's one. Uh, that's an argument put forth by Joe Atwill. Um, but uh, there's another. Um, there's there's a lot of very interesting stuff about Shakespeare, and, and I'm talking really. I'm mostly interested in the very ancient myths. Obviously, Shakespeare was in the early modern era, late 1500s, early 1600s. But he's using older myths, and in fact, there's some. Uh, other myths about a character named Amlethus, Amlethus, A-M-L-E-T-H-U-S, which turns into Hamlet Ah. in some different Northern European mythologies about this similar figure to Hamlet, who's kind of uh, pretends that he's mad as Hamlet does in the Shakespeare play and does these different things like throwing a ham hock into the ocean, which doesn't seem to make very much sense, but if you look back in different myths, all the way back to the Gilgamesh myth, we see Gilgamesh throwing the haunch of a bull in Ishtar's face in uh, the Gilgamesh cycle, just as Hamlet is always insulting his mother Gertrude in the Hamlet cycle. There's These patterns are very distinctive uh, that connect these different myths around the world. And there's a whole you know, academic subject of comparative mythology, which tries to explain these things. You've got different attempts to explain it, like uh, Young says, well, there maybe there's a collective unconscious, or Campbell says, oh, it's the eternal uh, return. But the authors of Hamlet's Mill said, wait a minute, I believe there's a celestial connection to these, and it may have to do with this motion of procession that you alluded to. And procession... Um, there is some debate over what causes procession, um, whether it is the wobble. I, mean, I believe it may be the wobble, but if you read uh, the books of Walt, Walter Cruttenden, he puts forth some different arguments. About yeah, what, I'm, uh, not, I'm not a big fan of Cruttenden because he ignores physics. So, no, Cruttenden is not, is not correct. That's why he's never invited me back to one of his conferences because I told him he's not correct. Okay, well, he's a personal friend of mine. So, well, um, well you, you, I you like, can have I personal like, friends that disagree with us. That's right. And, and I may not agree with all, of, all, you know, all of everybody's theories. But anyway, um, to, to set that aside, let's. Uh, well, we ought to put some numbers on the table. The, the, the yeah, okay. So the, the canonical processional, is, processional cycle is supposed to be twenty five thousand nine hundred and twenty years, of which in seventy two years 
the Earth processes by one degree of 360 degrees in a circle. You'll notice that 72 shows up in the Egyptian Horus, Set, and Osiris mythology in the 72 uh, barons or nobles or whatever who participated in the murder of Osiris. So you look for these numbers in these myths, and that's how you know they're ultimately connected to the idea of celestial procession. Right. So, so just to fill in kind of the stepping stones for, I don't want to leave anybody, because um, these are, these are, they're not uh, difficult to grasp concepts, but there's things that you never get, that you rarely get taught in any sort of formal, you can go through grad school and never get introduced to these concepts unless you go out and look for them. And so the concept that the procession, let me just explain, regardless of the mechanism that's causing it, Procession is definitely measurable, and nobody debates that procession is happening. And I do believe it is most likely caused by the wobble of the Earth, as you explained, just like a top, which I think is caused by the physics phenomenon of uh, the principle of conservation of angular momentum. But what this means is we're, we're orbiting on this tilt as we go throughout the year. and 23 what, and a half degrees. Yeah, it's not exactly 0.5, but yeah, you're right, 23. uh, Slightly less than 0.5. We've got this tilt, right, and that causes the seasons, but also we're going around the sun. And if you think the best way that I find to um, grasp this conceptually is to imagine you're, you're in a dining room with a round table. Let's just pretend you have a round table in your dining room. And in the middle of that round table, we've got a flaming candle that represents the sun. And around the edge of this round table, the earth is a little marble or a little ball uh, rolling around the very edge. Maybe it's slightly elliptical, right? But as it goes around, uh, when you're on the part of the ball that's turned towards the center of the table with that flaming ball of the sun in the middle of it, you won't see any stars because it's daytime. You will see the blue sky with the sun going across. But as the ball turns around and you're facing outwards towards the walls, you've got your, the back of the ball is, is to the sun, so that's blocking out the sun. It's nighttime. You're able to look up into the heavens and see the glorious stars. Now, we know that the stars are not painted on the walls and the ceiling, but just, uh, you know, there are all these different uh, uh, distances in three-dimensional space. But if you uh, just imagine as a simplified model that the star constellations are painted on the wall or the little stars are stuck on the wall, then you'll notice that as you go around that table, you're going to see different walls during different parts of the year. When you're at March, you'll be looking off on that wall and you might see a constellation such as Orion, or, or, you know, if, if it was different, I sometimes will say, let's say it's just different posters on the wall. we got Jimi Hendrix on that wall. Well, by the time you get around to the other side of the table, you won't be able to see Jimi Hendrix at night because the sun will be between you and that wall. So you'll be, when you're looking at nighttime, you'll be facing out to a different set of stars. So as we go throughout the year, when we get back to March 18th, which is today, when we look out at the sky, we're looking at exactly the same part of the sky that we were last March 18th, we should see the same constellation Orion or the same poster of Jimi Hendrix or whomever. uh, But what happens is, and and that is true, that happens. So in March, we see different set of stars as we see in June, as we see in December. But uh, the action of precession introduces another variable into that and it messes up that exact 
um, return. So when we get back to March 18th, we should see exactly the same stars. And for the most part, we do, but there's this very slow delay that's introduced into the sky by the fact that the Earth itself has this wobble in it that causes, from our perspective on Earth, a delay in the rising of the stars so that after a very long time, the constellation Orion will not be at his appointed place in time. He'll be held back. He'll be delayed. Okay. And we'll get into what that means mythologically, but it's because of this motion. But as you mentioned, it's extremely slow. So the actual processional constant as it is today is about one degree every 71.6 years. And as you correctly said, we usually round that up to 72 years. And for encoding it into myth, it's much easier to encode 72, mm. 71.6. We're not going to have set with his 71.6 henchmen killing Osiris, right? That would be weird. <laughs> so it's 72 henchmen, okay? Mm-hmm. But, and it may be that the processional constant has changed over the millennia. Well, see, this is where Cruttenden is right, because he has a graph which shows stunning changes in the processional constant, the time it takes for the Earth to wobble once. And we shouldn't probably say wobble because that implies it's rapid. It's really a coning motion in addition to the rotation. So you've got two rotations superimposed on each other, and this coning motion, i.e. wobble, creates this very long tens of thousands of years processional cycle. And in any one year, the stars move very tiny fractions of a degree uh, in, 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 I think it's West. You may correct me. I don't remember offhand. Um, and so in, in 72 years, they move w- about one degree. And so when you look at these mythologies, as I've taken doing, first thing I look at is not the story. I look for the numbers. You know, how many bad guys, how many princesses, how many this, how many. And if you see these processional numbers, you know, bingo, that's a coded processional celestial constellation story. Yeah. So actually the stars um, and these, these are, these concepts are best shown with diagrams. I didn't know we were going to get too deep into procession. So I didn't give you any, but you can find this. It's really like a double cone because for, uh, Listeners at home, you can envision the North Pole. If you think of the North Pole as a pencil stuck through a styrofoam ball um, coming out both ends, the top, what procession does over the long period of time is that pencil is going to make a slow cone. The top, the North Pole is going to make a cone, and the South Pole, of course, will make an opposite, a cone in the opposite direction. Yeah, I, so was what, being, I was being Northern Hemisphere chauvinistic, only talking about one cone, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, but no, I'm just trying to give someone a picture so they can envision it in their mind. But as you also asked, okay, what direction is it? So just to dial back to what everybody experiences in their daily life, we're all aware that the sun rises in the east, sets in the west. That's because we're spinning on this globe towards the east. That's why New York City has three hours ahead of us on their time zone here on the west coast. We're trailing because we're spinning towards the east. So that means that the, the stars in the sky appear to be moving towards the west. It's just like a billboard if you're driving down the freeway or you're on a train and you see, oh, it looks like all the trees are going backwards or, oh, it looks like all the billboards are going towards the rear of the train or the rear of the car. The billboard might not be moving at all, right? It's just sitting there on the side of the road. You're going forward, so it looks like it's going backwards. Same thing with the sun or the stars. 
they appear to be rotating from east to west because we are rotating towards the east, that edge of the earth that you're spinning towards the east. You're spinning towards the east coast of North America or, or Asia, wherever you're standing. So everything in the sky moves towards the west. Also, as we go around the sun, everything also moves towards the west. It actually rises a little bit earlier each night. So each star will rise a few minutes earlier each night, which means it'll get towards the west a little bit faster. And as we go through the year, those constellations that, like right now, um, the constellation Orion is, you know, in the middle of the sky, but he's already moving towards the west. So each night at 8 p.m., he'll be a little bit further west, or at midnight, he'll be a little bit further west than he was the night before until eventually, by the time the sun comes up, he's already sunk below the western horizon. So everything seems to move west except precession. That's why it's called precession, because what happens is it moves this. I mean, there's different ways of thinking about it, but what's happening is it's delaying the sky, not on a nightly basis, but on an annual basis. So when I get back to March 18th today, if I were to wake up uh, early in the morning tomorrow, March 19th, before the sun, there's going to be a certain constellation above the eastern horizon before the sun comes up. And that constellation will be the same constellation above the eastern horizon on March 18th or March 19th each year, except a thousand or two thousand years later, that whole constellation that should be there on March 19th is going to be delayed and it'll still be below the Eastern horizon. So you can think of it as moving towards the East. And we should, we should mention, clarify that we're talking about incremental motions that are occurring, even as you're looking at the sky, but they're so tiny, it takes a long time for them to add up. So they're visible to unaided human eyes, you know, just eyeballs. So then the question is one degree. Yeah. You're coming to a great question. I know what you're going to say. Go ahead. Well, you can complete my, my thought there. Yeah. Well, how did they do that? Because if you think about what we've been saying, the processional constant is only one degree in 71.6 or let's call it 72 years. So that means on March 19th or whichever, pick whatever day you want, but actually the, the equinox it's called the precession of the equinoxes for a reason, because the, house of stars that the sun is rising in on the equinox is a very important thing. It tells you, you know, right, what, what the sign uh, that the sun is in on the day that we get back to the sun being in the upper half of the year. Uh, This gets into the Zodiac diagram that we can talk about later. I don't want to get sidetracked. Well, we're coming up at the top of the hour. So we got maybe a minute to wrap this part up. So let me, so let me just say what's happening to the the delay only is only one degree in 72 years. And it's on that exact day. So you'd only see this. The star would only be one degree, 72 years later, the same star on the same exact day, and you have to be in the exact same, standing in the same exact place, et cetera, et cetera, basically with your chin like right on the same point, <laughs> you would notice that the star is one degree different after 72 years. Which well, is only twice the width of the full moon in the sky or the width of the sun, which you really can't see the sun with the naked eye. Do not stare at the sun with the naked eye. But when you look at the moon, <laughs> it's half a degree across. So it's only twice the width of a full moon in 72 years would be the star difference, and it incrementally adds up night after night after night after 
night. Yeah, so to figure that out, you have to have some very precise and long-term, really, uh, you have to be taking calculations longer than a human life. Which is why we're going to get into mythology and ancient peoples and recordings that they made, all of which in the next half hour. So hold it there, David. My guest this morning is David Matheson. The music in the background, Methodia from NASA and Vangelis. NASA and mythologies. Gosh, what in the world could be the connection of NASA and mythologies? You suppose they know all this stuff and a lot more? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. there. This is Kinthea, producer for The Other Side of Midnight. It often happens that I receive email from listeners. I don't see the ruins in that photo. How do you see it? So, we decided that we would put together a special workshop for our Club 19.5 members only. In this workshop, we're going to go over how to look at that NASA photo and see what's actually there an artistic analysis of ancient ruins. Please join Ken Johnson, Keith Laney, Andrew Curry, myself, and other citizen experts as we explore this topic together. And I invite you to go to theothersideofmidnight.com. Click on the workshop link and send us your suggestions of what you would like us to cover in this workshop or other workshops. We'll keep you posted. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, 
And this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire Bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>